guys, welcome back to the internet and color and emotion, episode six. My name is Rebecca, and today turned out differently than what I had anticipated, but that's okay. So here I am at 8.47 p.m. recording the podcast, which sometimes I do on purpose because I found that for whatever reason, less airplanes are taking off at 8.47 than they are at 5.47 in the morning, and also there are less sounds of home life happening except for the fact that I went to go run some errands and my car was like doing a little bit too much and I was like listen no one has the time okay I literally just spent a new battery on you get your life then I was praying about it because I was like lord I don't want to just be like ignoring car symptoms and then end up on the side of the road yet again and have USAA come rescue me (laughs) so I was like okay what should I do about this what must I do to be saved amen no Um, and it occurred to me after Googling that I should get some cataclysmic converter cleaner. And I just so happened to be across the street from an auto zone. So I was like, the Lord be praised. Amen. So I went across the street to the auto zone, made it across the street that didn't have a legitimate enough intersection, in my opinion. And the person in front of me, no blinker. Okay pulls out and then slows down and stops in the middle of the road. I'm like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Can you continue, sir, so that I don't get intersected? Which reminds me of the beef that I have with Teslas. This wasn't a Tesla, but I live in a town with lots of Teslas. And I realized, I feel like the reason, besides the fact that the owners of the Teslas don't operate it and (laughs) don't use a turn signal, but the Tesla will slow down because it's fancy, but it doesn't, do the rear light thing that happens in real life when a car slows down. And I'm like, whose idea is that? That's probably why when a Tesla causes an accident, it's always like a 12 car pileup from a rear end situation because it slows down automatically, but there's no warning to the driver behind them. It's just like, I'm just randomly going to slow down 15 miles an hour slower than what I was going without any brake lights. So off that segue, the point is I get an auto zone. And there's like one more box of the stuff I just saw in the line that I felt impressed to go buy. So I'm like, yeah, it's got to be praised. The guy's on his way out to make a delivery, but he sees me. He stops. He comes to the counter. He's like, ma'am, let me hook it up for you. So I asked him, I was like, does this just go like in the gas tank situation? Because I don't, I'm not doing anything besides that. Like if it's more involved then I'm not doing this. But it was, it was one of those things you just add it, fuel additive, and it helps your car's longevity. So He was like, yes, that's all you do. I buy it. I go to the parking lot, open the box. For whatever reason, I shake it. I don't know if it's because I'm used to opening things that do need to be shaken, like, I don't know, heavy cream for my coffee. But then somebody had already opened it and (laughs) splashed on me. So here I am with additive on my Carolina sweatshirt and my hands. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Thankfully, I was like not super far from my house. So I made a pit stop from the rest of my efficiently planned errands to come wash myself and my clothing and then get back in the car and go back for the rest of my errands. And I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, except for the fact that, oh yeah, my day didn't turn out as I had planned. But the first half of my day was awesome because I got some cute dresses on super sale from Old Navy and I was able to order them ahead of time. And they were ready by my lunch break. And then there was also a Moe's down the street and I had $10 in my Moe's app. So that was awesome. So episode six, I fully intended to talk about Peter disciple of Jesus and betrayer of Jesus, repentant apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and proximity and positioning. 
So here we go. Let me find my notes on my Evernote that I wrote <laughs> for this ramble. I'm not even caffeinated at this point. I think I'm just punchy, which goes along with my peas. I am a fan of alliteration, have always been since I learned that it was a thing. So, okay. In the last couple of episodes, I was talking about anger and stuff and like the older brother heart posture syndrome and all these things. Well, I want to wrap up talking about anger because I'm kind of like, you know, you can only, it's, I think it's important to diagnose, to dissect, to extract the issue like a surgeon, but in your soul. But you then have to turn and lift your eyes to the Lord Jesus and keep moving, right? Like wholeheartedness is a very dynamic and engaging way to live, I'm finding, Um and it's interesting because I feel like personally I came to a place where I was like able to kind of if I felt like a crossover into um more like genuine optimism and like really believing that the best is yet to come. Part of how I arrived there was just simple logic, right? Like, well, Jesus is coming back. That is the best thing ever, and so the best is yet to come. And that kind of, like, helped me move forward in life and see the goodness of God in different ways and, like, be more open to the goodness of God. And so for a while, I was, like, so far on that end of the spectrum that I just really didn't have the time, capacity, or compassion for hardship because I'm like, no, we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, which is absolutely true, and I'm feeling the Lord bring me back towards um the middle and towards this sort of I think I might have said this on the podcast before but I have a lot of inner internal monologues so I don't always remember what makes it into the actual world but I was thinking of myself and the way that I'm put together and this interest that I do have in like surfing and the intensity of big wave surfing even though I have absolutely no intention of actually performing that I get it. And I feel like emotionally, that's kind of what the Lord has kind of like called me to is this sort of learning to read the ocean, learning to know which waves to ride, being equipped and able and courageous enough to ride big emotional waves and to not wipe out and drown. So all of that to say, I want to wrap up for now, as far as I can tell, these thoughts and talk about anger But I wanted to do so just highlighting that as I have been processing it over the past few years and months and weeks and days, um, one of the things that I feel like I've seen is that anger reveals what we love. And even when it so, you know, sometimes people talk about anger as like what they call a secondary emotion, which basically means that what you're actually feeling is sad or afraid, but because those feel more vulnerable or you're not in tune enough with yourself to acknowledge and recognize that off the bat, what comes first is the anger and that sort of like, you know, flight, I mean, not flight, but fight response. Um, I think that's true, but I do think that also sometimes you're just salty. (laughs) You just are agitated, worked up and angry about something. And um, what I was thinking though is about love. And how, because God gets angry, but his is righteous anger. And we give it that title of righteous because most of the time our anger is not righteous. Um, But it still reveals that we love something and it feels like what we love is being threatened. For me, I find that like 
my sense of order and peace and justice and perfection in some seasons of life is has been really easily agitated and it's that same kind of like irritation that Jonah seems to have towards the end of that uh, minor prophet book in the Bible where he is long story short salty because God sends him to go preach repentance to a people and they do repent and so then God shows compassion he's like see that's why I didn't want to come over here because I knew he was gonna forgive them and then he's like watching hoping that maybe they will get destroyed or just because he just wants to see what's going to happen and then the Lord allows this shade tree to like bloom up pretty miraculously overnight to where it like actually shades him from the scorching sun and so then he's like yes a little bit of shade while I sit here and throw shade and it's funny because (laughs) to me I just get this image of him like the Grinch who stole Christmas like up on his little raggedy mountain like being so salty about the who's down in Whoville and their songs of Thanksgiving but then a worm comes and like eats the the tree branch or whatever it is that's giving him shade and then it withers and dies and he's like mad all over again and like worse than before and the Lord's like do you do well to be angry and he's like yes angry enough to die and I've like written several songs before from that perspective of like Jonah one of them's called withering shade and it's like 100% my jam (sighs) quite literally but <laughs> I was thinking about, because I was reading it in the Amplified Bible, and sorry, I still don't have my um, my new and improved sound situation. So the last couple episodes, like I said, I was recording it late at night, and I also had it set up to where I was like on my bed, and so the covers kind of mute some of the atmospheric sound and amplify my voice. But I'm sitting at my desk and a little bit all over the place and super jazzed, but... <clears throat> Dang, what's I even talking about? Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Oh yeah, I was reading in the Amplified Bible. And I feel like there's something that the Lord says about compassion, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So if you look at verse uh, chapter 4 of Jonah, verses 10 and 11 is the end to the story. Well, I'll read verse 9. Because it says, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the loss of the plant? And he said, I have a very good reason to be angry, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 innocent persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand and are not yet accountable for sin, as well as many blameless animals? And it was interesting to me that the Lord um, classified Jonah's response to the plant withering as compassion. Because when I read it, and having, like I said before, a similar disposition to Jonah in some ways, it seems, (laughs) I never thought of him being angry about his own discomfort and imposition as compassion. But I think that the Lord must... I feel like this passage and like seeing these different words to express it just gave me an an inclination and a glimpse into the heart of God and like what he thinks about destruction at all. Like he didn't create a planet that was intended to self-destruct or be, you know, damaged and destroyed. So he has a completely different perspective, whereas like that's all we've ever known. So there's some things that are like, oh, that's too bad. And there's some things that are like super tragic and some things that make us angry. Like I get really worked up sometimes about 
construction and pots and the like potholes in the road. I'm like, somebody needs to get it together and fix this. But it's like, do I do well to be angry about that? You know? And anyway, so the fact that God sees Jonah's response to the destruction and withering of the plant as compassion was really interesting to me, particularly because all of the earth groans as a result of the curse because the wages of sin is death. So that is not even nearly coherent and I'm totally okay with that, (laughs) but that's what I was thinking about it. And so the thought that I did have that I had written out in my notes was that God implements compassion, not necessarily as an antithesis to anger, but as an antidote to anger. Because anger does reveal something about what we love. When we love something more, then that helps us navigate and sometimes can even soothe that anger. And so the last example I will give is just simply like, if you've ever had something that was like, I don't know, some degree of valuable to you and somebody that you know accidentally breaks it, like the closer and you are to that person and the more you value that relationship the easier it is for you to not actually be mad at that person because you love them more than the object that they accidentally damaged so that is what i was thinking about that the other thing that i was thinking because you guys my content counter reset and i have like nine hours of just talking so (laughs) i can upload on my podcast episodes um so let me like bring it down a little bit so I can um be worth listening to here um okay so I was thinking about Peter and some of the ways that he and I have overlap in our personality type and our relationship to the Lord and this is not to be presumptuous but just you know the Bible indicates that everything in it was written as examples for us and to edify and build us up and I want to learn from those in the Bible who experienced life in similar ways that I do so I'm just going to walk through like kind of what I was thinking about what I was thinking is that like there's something about Peter's um commitment to keeping the ways of God that ends up having his identity identity be completely predicated on self-righteousness and being better than other people <laughs> right because it's like that's just how it was like when you look at the law and the way that it played out over those centuries that it was in place and the way that the Lord did intentionally create of the Jewish people a distinct people group there was a lot of this sort of like cultural animosity and thoughts of uncleanness and stuff like that that they didn't just come up with themselves like there are things in the Bible that other nations and cultures and kingdoms were doing that the Lord called unclean and so to a degree um, it was good and necessary for there to be people who were you know, cognizant of that and reminding themselves and other people that they're called to a higher standard. Well, it can be really challenging when your whole identity is based off of that. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't mean anything anymore because this new era gets ushered in where Jesus is like, ta-da, all of y'all's righteousness is trash. And here I am to mend the gap and take the pressure off and pay the penalty for your sins and reconcile you to the giver of the gospel. 
but it can be really hard to like know what to do with yourself and know where to find your value if you've always made your identity about um, what you're doing and getting right and when you're always like comparing yourself to other people as a constant metric and gauge of how things are going. So the other interesting thing too was that I was looking at the progression of um, these certain passages in scripture in this part of the narrative and the thing that was interesting to me is that to like what I was saying like Peter seems to have this this value for an understanding of Jewish culture and um, the law and the ways to walk in righteousness even though he doesn't get it right all the time there's like he actually cares about what should be you know happening and so um he also sorry (laughs) like a little bit all over the place he also so here I'm just gonna read what I put Peter gets selected for a super important task, important in the context of their Jewish world and prophetically important in the transitional era of God establishing a new covenant in the earth. This is after Peter was also selected to be present at the Mount of Transfiguration. So the task I'm referring to is that Jesus asked Peter and John to go prepare um, the Passover supper during the Passion Week. And... um, before that, Peter had happened to be in the small group of friends that the Lord had with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, where there's this like miraculous moment where the heavens open up and he's communicating, I think with Moses and Elisha, I didn't actually read the passage, so I don't quite remember, but um, I was just kind of like scanning and noticed that like Peter was in these really holy sacred moments. And his response was always to like try and do something to try and like manage how it turned out. Um, and so there's a sense in which like the Lord does trust Peter with these, these like, you know, important moments. And he honors Peter's, um, the same stuff in him, that zeal and that commitment to the right way that sometimes is expressed sinfully and pridefully is also what the Lord works within Peter to produce of him the apostle that he wants to have contribute to the building of his kingdom. So um, after those two events, Jesus starts to talk about the fact that he's going to be betrayed. And this is okay. So sorry, (laughs) in between that, Jesus asks the disciples, like, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer. So then it's like, oh, yeah, like he got from God this truth, this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the way that that kind of um, warps a little bit in the ensuing moments is that because he does see Jesus for who he is, it's almost as if he thinks that he can help Jesus understand how to be the Messiah. So when Jesus is saying like, guys, I'm going to be betrayed. These things are going to happen. Peter's like, no, this will never happen to you. And he like tries to rebuke the Lord. And the Lord's like, skirt, get behind me, Satan. Because, um, you know, Peter, Peter is being used in that moment by the enemy to try to get Jesus to feel sorry for himself and to create distance and animosity between Jesus and the father and get him off of that wholehearted willingness to be the sacrifice. Which, if I might take another side journey, I, the older I get, the more humbled and appreciative I am by the way that Jesus lived his life. Because all of those daily deaths to himself, 
all of that patience, all of that like ability to have wisdom in every moment and to know when to say the, something and when not to say something, when to entrust himself to God who judges justly and when to call people out on their ridiculous shenanigans. Like, I just think about my own self, like it really couldn't have been me. Like, I just, you know, like it's so much more glamorous sometimes to have this one moment of death and then it's over than to like have a lifetime of faithfulness and a lifetime of denying yourself and a lifetime of carrying your cross. And Jesus did both, you know? So it's just so beautiful. And he's just like such a perfect, awesome, holy savior. Um, but um, so he's telling his disciples though about the suffering that he's about to endure. And, they're, and Peter's like, no, this isn't gonna happen to you. And so when Jesus like rebukes him in that very strong way, it's interesting to me that then later when they are at the supper of Passover that um, Peter helped prepare, when Jesus brings it up again, rather than ask Jesus directly like, hey, who are you talking about? Which one of us is it? Peter asks John to ask Jesus. And what I was thinking about is like, like, why would he do that? <laughs> you know, and I think there's that sort of not wanting to get called out again, this sense of insecurity and this like, almost like a little bit of wedge between him and Jesus that is already kind of there, this sort of like lack of confidence in approaching Jesus that um, I think contributes to the way that he reacts and responds to the events that unfold during that week. And <clears throat> it was interesting to me because I think thinking about, um, and obviously I've never met Peter and there are some things that are not like, expressly stated in scripture obviously but just reading the passages and and kind of connecting the dots of how Peter's personality seems to be in different ways that I can kind of identify with his responses I was thinking about how it could be that there was some element of like practicality or even perceived humility that Peter had that he didn't expect to be in constant close proximity with God and with Jesus and the king of this kingdom that he so was like passionate about, you know, and that kind of couples with with that intense anticipation and yearning for the kingdom. And so rather than like, try to be right up next to Jesus all the time, or like, you know, expect that Jesus is always going to be um, accessible to him. It's almost like he starts to lean on his own understanding and try to position himself and the reason that's not a good idea is because the Bible tells us to be not wise in our own eyes. And so I think when you do try to kind of like position yourself according to your own assessment, you really forget how much there is to the story that you don't know. And so to the point that I was making before, the notes that I have here is that like um, when Peter sees these holy moments and recognizes them as such, he attempts to determine and control what happens in those moments and to position himself and therefore other people according to his own will for the praise of his glory to kind of get more kudos or also though I think there's something to be said about like the prejudice that develops when you do think that the right way 
is to distance yourself from or be better than or above certain other people. And so I wonder if there was this lack of trust that like he didn't trust God to not position him next to the peasants. So he's kind of trying to like maneuver his own place in things so that he doesn't have to be next to people that he doesn't want to be next to. And again, this is all speculation because this is how I am. <laughs> so that's kind of like what I would do. But what I do love about the whole thing and what is absolute truth that can be extracted is that Jesus is wanting to develop Peter as a servant and empower him to equip and build up and strengthen the brothers, which is the way leadership works in the kingdom. So, I mean, because Jesus says like, you know, you're going to deny me, but when you return, strengthen your brothers. So Peter kind of had been a little bit preoccupied with his own qualifications and his eligibility to lead and to follow in a very specific way, whereas Jesus is not to be like Jesus is the leader, right? So you get to this moment in the garden where like Jesus, the time has come. And so he fully surrenders himself. And Peter is like, what? You got to be kidding me. Like, what is? No, we're fighting. Like he's pulling out swords. He's slashing off ears. And Jesus is like, no, this is not the way. And he gets to say that because he is Jesus. He's the king. And because he has spent his whole life dying to himself, dying to his own agenda, positioning himself in consistent and faithful communion and fellowship with the Father so that he does know what the plan and the strategy is. And so in order for us to walk in that same way, it takes us having our eyes on Jesus and being willing to let go of all of the things that we thought and believed and worked for before Jesus became Lord of our life. And so I just really love that the same um, attributes that Peter has that kind of got in the way of his faithfulness and obedience, the Lord uses those same attributes to then fashion and masterpiece Peter into a builder of the kingdom and an equipper of the saints towards endurance. So that was a hot mess, but I got it out, which is what my goal was. And I had fun. And if you haven't heard before, my metrics for my podcast are that I'm going to follow through and I'm going to enjoy it. And so I hope you enjoy it. And I will talk to you soon. In the meantime, take heart, friends.